You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, 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 friend. I'm TK, your tour guide to the past, and you are listening to For the Love of History, the podcast where we talk about world history, women's history, weird history, and spooky history for the month of October. We are here today to partake in my favorite, for the love of history, spooky season tradition, the Japanese ghost story episode. Sometimes we talk about yokai, sometimes we talk about little demon dudes, sometimes we talk about ghosts and legends from Japan. And today... We're doing a fun little combo of all of those things because today we are talking about the very long history of Japanese ghost stories. And of course, I will be telling you some spooky tales. But before we get started, a little housekeeping. Don't forget to head on over to Patreon for the bonus ghost stories that are happening all month long. And if you haven't already checked out the super cute and creepy Halloween merch that we have up featuring my favorite yokai, the booty hole soul snatcher himself, the kappa, <laughs> and so much more. Now, without further ado, grab your blankie and hide your feet because the monsters under the bed will eat your toes. I'm very serious about this. And let's get to it. Some of the best scary movies, in my opinion, come from Japan, and so many classic American scary movies are actually adaptations of Japanese scary movies, like The Ring, The Grudge, Dark Water, and even The Black Swan were all originally Japanese movies, and it makes sense that Japan would produce such spine-chilling films given its long history with horror and the supernatural. Every culture has some form of spooky storytelling, but Japan literally made ghost stories a competitive sport and an occupation. Japan is predominantly a Buddhist slash Shinto country. It, it, it's really its own flavor of Buddhism, and Jigoku, or Japanese Buddhist hell, is terrifying. Like, 10 out of 10, do not recommend Buddhist hell. There's lots of fire, lots of flying people, rivers of poop that you gotta eat if you kill bugs. It's it's wild. Uh, there's like swords that rain down from the sky, demons fry people in giant frying pans. I, I, it's What I'm trying to say is it's terrifying. And in order to keep people from doing very bad things, the monks would tell people these horrible stories about what goes on in Buddhist hell. So from these cautionary tales of what Buddhist hell is like, the genre of ghost stories in Japan was born called 
Kaidan. The kanji for kaidan are kai, which means mysterious or strange, and it's the same kai kanji that we see in the word yokai, and then the kanji dan, which means to tell or to narrate. So the literal translation is narration of the mysterious. Oh, love that. Kaidan has been around for thousands of years or so, but really took off in the Edo period between 1603 and 1867. At the beginning of the 1600s, Japan was in its economic prosperity era, and merchants were making that sweet, sweet rice money, and the samurai were more or less at peace. The big wars were all over, and there wasn't really a need to fight, so many of the samurai class turned to a more soft girl aesthetic, if you will. This meant that art and travel were on the up and up and traveling storytellers became very, very popular. Otogishu, or professional storytellers, were a must-have for daimyo and samurai lords who wanted to keep their guests entertained. And the most entertaining kind of stories were the spooky ones. Now that war was over, people could separate themselves from real-life horrors that happened during the Warring States period, and they could appreciate a good, scary story. Ghost stories quickly became a huge part of Edo culture and found their way into festivals, religious ceremonies, and became an extremely popular pastime among all social classes to do something called a hyakumonogatari kaidan kai. Say that 10 times fast. Hyakumonogatari kaidan kai. Hyakumonogatari kaidan kai. Okay, I'm only going to say it three times because it's very long. Basically, this hyakumonogatari kaidan kai basically means the meeting of 100 ghost stories or the 100 ghost stories competition, depending on the way you translate it. It was part sport and part test of bravery and part seance. People would either gather around a paper lamp with 100 wicks in it or each have their own lantern depending on the number of people that there were. And each person had to go around telling a ghost story. And after the story was over, one wick or one lantern would be extinguished. Gradually, it would get darker and darker until finally all the light was gone. Supposedly, Completion of the Hyakumonogatari Kaidankai would summon a ghost or a spirit and prove that everyone was a certified baddie if they could handle that sort of thing happening. One retelling of a Hyakumonogatari Kaidankai talks about a giant hand coming down from the ceiling after the last light was extinguished and the last story was done being told, and it scared the bejesus out of everybody. However, if the 100 stories weren't completed, some disaster would befall everyone in the group and everyone would call them big scaredy chicken babies for the rest of their lives. Just kidding about the last one. But the bad luck was apparently real. Because of the popularity of these oral stories, authors began creating collections of them in books like the Hyakomonogatari, which is an incredibly creative name. <laughs> Just take the name of the thing and put it on the book. <laughs> And you also had the Shokoku Hyakumona Gatari. Oh my god, if I. (laughs) Going from speaking English to Japanese is so hard sometimes. So, another book, another famous book was called the Shokoku 
Hyakumonogatari, which in English translates to the 100 stories from various provinces. And there were also many, many other very popular books. Some of these stories are downright horrifying, a la Buddhist hell. And some stories are about righteous vengeance and women ghosts totally getting back at their abuser or a garbage human that did them wrong in their life. Other stories are critiques on social issues and poke fun at the privileged few, and some are stories to explain natural phenomenon that people had yet to discover scientific answers for. And today, I'm going to tell you about two of my favorite and most popular kaidan tales. So, Pull up a little closer to the lamplight, friend, and listen carefully to the story of the cursed kimono and a little bit of spooky kabuki. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Kimono, one of the most iconic symbols of Japanese culture. The very mention of them conjures up thoughts of elegance, beauty, delicate designs, and gorgeous fabric. They're worn for happy occasions, the pleated hakama for graduation, the silk uchikake for weddings, and elegant long-sleeved furisode for coming-of-age ceremonies. And during the Edo period, they were everyday attire. A respectable young girl would not be caught dead without her long embroidered furisode kimono if she wanted to catch the eye of a suitor. But our tale today, my delicious little donut, is not one of celebration, nor does it have a happy ending. Our story takes place more than 300 years ago when Osame, the daughter of a very wealthy wine merchant, went to a swanky event at the Azabu district in Edo, the old capital of Japan. There among the elite were merchants of every kind, fat with the wealth that had blessed Japan for the last few decades and samurai with their now useless swords awkwardly strapped to their hips. Wherever she looked, there were men and women dressed in the finest silk Kyoto had to offer, sewn into the latest fashions. How very boring, Osame thought. As she scanned the endless sea of silk and self-importance, Osame spotted the most handsome man she had ever seen. Jet black hair tied neatly in his little samurai man bun, back straight, eyes bright, and his two long swords strapped not awkwardly, but gracefully to his waist, causing the crowd around him to part like water. 
He was a certified hottie, and Osame had to have him. Unfortunately, the girl could not catch a break. Try as she might, she couldn't seem to catch the man's attention, and soon the event came to an end. But fear not, dear one, Osame had a plan. A very, very creepy plan. Osame had burned the man's image into her memory, from the exact shade of purple of his hakama to the crest he wore on his chest. She took this stalker energy to the finest kimono maker in Edo and had them create a furesode version of Super Hari's outfit. Her idea was to catch his attention with her twinning kimono. She wore her furesode every day for months, but to no avail. He never noticed her, but she refused to take it off, wearing it day and night. This obsession began taking a toll on her physical and mental health. Everything she did was for him to notice her. She couldn't eat. She couldn't sleep. Her thoughts were consumed entirely of this man. And one night, after days of not eating and drinking, she simply passed away. In the night, she was heartbroken, but still wearing that purple kimono. Because she loved it so much, the young girl was cremated with the kimono. But strange tales of similar events began popping up all over the city. Love-struck girls would be seen in a vivid purple kimono. Then days later, they would pass away from a mysterious illness or accident while trying to catch their beloved's eye. This happened over and over again, and eventually it all became too much for a very devout monk of the city. He was convinced that the restless soul of Osame clung to the furisode, cursing the women who dared to find love. Because if she couldn't have the one that she desired, no one could. The monk knew what he had to do. He scoured the city for the purple kimono, and eventually he found it. He took it back to his temple and began performing the rituals to exercise this vengeful spirit and release it into the afterlife, finally freeing Osame's soul. But when he began his work, strong winds started whipping across the land and into the temple. The pyre that he had built to burn the kimono roared and licked the pillars of the wooden house of holiness. He tossed the kimono in the fire and it burned bright purple and a gust of wind toppled the pyre over, setting the temple on fire. The fire spread quickly, unnaturally quickly, through the temple grounds and the neighboring houses. The entire city of Edo was made of dry, lacquered wood, and the fire consumed it all, like the all-consuming love Osame had for that hunky samurai. This is the story of the cursed kimono. And though the creepy love story may not be true, the fire was very, very real, dear one. The great fire of Meireki, sometimes known as the Furisode Fire, took place on March 2nd, 1657, and it destroyed almost 70% of the capital city, and it's estimated to have killed over 100,000 people in a single day. No one is sure how the fire started, 
But this is the legend of how it started and one of the most popular kaidan in Japanese history. So I have a history of burnout and burnout brought on by too much working, not enough sleep and compensating for both with too much caffeine. If you've been a history BFF for a while, you know I took a very long break before season four because I could not, I just couldn't keep up with my teaching job, my one woman podcast and creating content for Instagram. I was in a burnout spiral for sure, and it was quite serendipitous that Magic Mind reached out to me back then. I started drinking the matcha Magic Mind drinks to try them out before I told you about them. I was definitely skeptical at first, but I've been drinking Magic Mind for quite a while now, and I've noticed a significant change in my energy levels, my focus, and I've been able to get through my day job work and then work on for the love of history without needing to have another cup of coffee or two or an energy drink. One of the things I love the most about Magic Mind is the sustainability (laughs) and the quality of the ingredients, one of which is matcha. And you know, I live in Japan. I love Japanese history. I love all things Japan. And when I was doing my research and found out that the matcha in Magic Mind is sourced directly from a city in Kyoto, I was absolutely hooked. Matcha has so many amazing benefits like containing L-thalanine, which reduces stress and contains components called catchines that extend the benefits of caffeine by slowing your body's ability to absorb it. This means you get the benefits of caffeine without the jitters and the crashes. You know how important it is for me to remind you to be kind to yourself and take care of yourself. So I was very fortunate for Magic Mind to reach out again in season seven, and they created a super offer for me to share with you. For the next 10 days, you get 56% off of your first subscription and 20% off of your one-time purchase with the code History Pod 20. That's capital H I S T O R Y P O D 20. You can use the link in the show notes and scoot your little booty on over to www.magicmind.com/slash history pod. Thank you so much to Magic Mind for sponsoring this episode. Now let's get back to some spooky Halloween history. To end our episode today, my delicious little donut, we are going to get into some spooky kabuki. And just a little refresher, kabuki is a traditional form of theater popular in the Edo period where all the characters are played by men, the costumes are like season finale runway of RuPaul's Drag Race level amazing and over the top, and they paint their faces into set expressions. Spooky Kabuki is a very popular genre of Kabuki, and our next spine-chilling tale comes from Kaidan Kabuki. The previous story is an incredibly popular one, but this next story is the one that put Spooky Kabuki on the map, and every single person in Japan knows about this Kabuki. And before we begin, it does deal with a little bit of domestic violence, so a trigger warning. If you don't want to continue the episode, that's totally fine. I'll see you next week. But if you are okay to continue, double check your little tootsies are tucked in under the blanket because I'm very serious about those monsters munching on feet. And let's begin 
the story of Yotsuya Kaidan. I must warn you, dear one, this is a tale of the most garbagey, garbage humans to ever curse the earth with their garbage atrocities. In the city of Edo, a young woman sits in her dilapidated home. She waits for the night to fall when she can safely go to the pleasure district without being seen. Oiwa is the daughter and wife of two poor ronin, masterless samurai with no title and no money. The code of honor dictates that she must support her family at all costs, and in order to keep what little they had and put food on the table, she sells the only thing she has, herself. But no one must find out. The years drag on and Oiwa can take it no longer. Her husband is cruel and a complete waste of space. She's tired and lonely and no longer wants to work in the pleasure district. But when she talks to her husband, he refuses to support the family and he treats Oiwa like a servant and not a partner. Oiwa goes to speak to her aging father and begs him to let her divorce this pile of sentient refuse. She had the misfortune to call a husband. Her father agrees and says that he will speak to her husband later that night. Oiwa returns to home and sleeps restlessly. When she wakes the next day, the door of her room bursts open and it's none other than the hot garbage husband himself. He has terrible news. Oiwa's father has been killed by bandits. She's distraught and begins to cry out for vengeance. And upon hearing this, her garbage husband has the bright idea that he will avenge her father's death if only Oiwa stays with him and does not go through with the divorce. Suspicion briefly crosses her mind. How did he know about the divorce? She had not mentioned it to him, and hadn't her father been killed by the bandits? Very sus indeed, dear one, but let's not be too hard on Oiwa. She was going through it. She agreed to the terms and stayed with Mr. Asshat, but things quickly went from bad to worse. She fell pregnant and became very ill. Because of her condition, Oiwa couldn't work, so her family fell deeper and deeper into poverty and asshat husband didn't do a darn thing. They couldn't pay for medicine and Oiwa was no longer able to get up from her bed. Mr. Asshat became more resentful and his wandering eye found someone else. Next door was the house of a very wealthy doctor and his granddaughter, who had the shittiest taste in men, because she had fallen in love with Mr. Asshat and wanted to marry him, knowing full well he was married and his wife was sick. But this story is full of garbage humans, dear one. She went all Veruca Salt from Willy Wonka and begged her grandfather to do something because she had to marry Mr. Asshat. Grandfather Garbage said say less and created an ointment to disfigure Oiva. Under the guise of, I just want to help, Grandfather Garbage went over to Oiwa's home and gave the ointment to her husband. But this ointment was no medicine. It was actually poison to disfigure Oiwa's face. You see, Granddaughter Garbage Human thought that Oiwa was too beautiful, so her husband would never leave her. So the plan was to disfigure her. Oiwa, thinking that the doctor had taken pity on her, dutifully put the ointment all 
over her face. It stung and burned, but Oiwa thought it was just really strong medicine. After weeks of using the cream, Oiwa's face became disfigured and burned, but she was so weak she couldn't get up from the bed to look in a mirror. She just thought the medicine was working. Mr. Asshat, upon seeing her face, became outraged. Not only was his wife now useless, but she was also disfigured. And that is when Dr. Garbage struck. He wrote up a marriage contract and told Mr. Asshat that he could have everything he desired, a title, money, and a beautiful new wife, if only Oiwa was out of the picture. So Mr. Asshat came up with a brilliant idea to pay one of his gross friends to violate Oiva and accuse her of adultery so he could divorce her without looking like a bad guy. Mr. Asshat paid off one of his garbage minions and the garbage minions set off for the house. However, upon seeing the state of Oiva, a tiny sliver of guilt and responsibility snuck its way into his rancid heart. He abandoned the plan and instead told her what her husband was doing and handed her a mirror. She screamed in agony and upon seeing her face, she screamed in agony at the sight of her blistering and burned face. She was appalled that she had been tricked by her husband and the doctor. She set her mind to confronting them, but wanted to brush her hair to hide the burned side of her face. But when she ran the comb through her limp strands, it came out in chunks. Clump after clump fell from her head and she flew into a rage. She grabbed a knife and stood up to find her awful husband, but the garbage minion tried to stop her. She was so weak that when he grabbed her arm, she tripped and fell onto her own knife. Oiwa began bleeding out onto the floor and with her final breath, she cursed the doctor, her husband and his soon-to-be new wife as well, swearing to get revenge in this life or the next. After Oiwa had died, the garbage minion ran to Mr. Asshat to tell him the news. He was delighted and showed his appreciation to his friend by killing him and framing him for adultery with his wife anyways. Mr. Asshat was off the hook, scot-free, to marry granddaughter garbage. The wedding day was everything two evil people could hope for. And when the day was over, they laid down on their futon for their first night as a married couple. Mr. Asshat then turned to his new wife and instead of the beautiful young thing that he had just married, the tortured, burned face of his first wife was staring back at him. He leapt from the bed and grabbed his sword, running it through the evil spirit. But when he pulled the blade from its belly, there stood his new wife, her white kimono, now stained red with her blood. Mr. S had fled from the room only to be met by the friend he had already murdered. Gaunt, white, and howling with revenge, Mr. S had cut this apparition in two. But when the body thudded to the floor, 
It was the face of the doctor that was looking up at him. No matter how far he ran or where he went, night after night, he saw his wife's vengeful face. His dreams turned to nightmares, and soon his nightmares ran into his reality. He could no longer tell what was real or what was his imagination. Finally, he could take it no more, and he begged his friend to end his life. And out of pity, he killed Mr. Asshat. But even in death, he could not escape Oiwa. And to this day, Oiwa's thirst for vengeance is still not satisfied. And some say that she can be found haunting the dreams of terrible husbands across Japan. Well, dear one, we have come to our final thought for today. I hope you enjoyed my interpretations of these two classic Kaidan tales. I hope you were sufficiently spooked. For our final thought today, I have a fun travel spot recommendation that has to do with our last story. The Oiwa Inari Tamiya Shrine is located on the outskirts of Shinjuku in Tokyo, and it's apparently super duper creepy. It's a very small temple and doesn't look like much, but according to some, very, very creepy supernaturally things happen here at night during the summer. This shrine is dedicated to the ghost of Oiwa, and although she's not buried here, it's said that her spirit rests here. And my favorite thing about this is that many producers, directors, and actors come to this shrine before they create any reproduction of the Yotsuya Kaidan story to ask permission and to pray for no bad stuff to happen on set because there are rumors of weird and dangerous things that have happened at playhouses and movie sets that dare to recreate her story without her blessing. Consent is key, my friend, always and forever. So if you're ever in Tokyo, please make sure to pop on over to Oiwa's Shrine and say hello. dear one that is episode 106 in the books and i am so excited to bring you more more one more (laughs) spooky history story this month and all of the other world history women's history women what did i say (laughs) and all the other world history women's history and weird history that is to come this season. Don't forget to share this episode with your other history BFFs and leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. If you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can head on over to Patreon where we have lots of fun bonus content like spooky history told in the dark, sleepy history bonus episodes, early releases, and merch discounts. And speaking of merch, don't forget to check out all of the new and classic for the love of history merch that is out right now. Your support means the world to me. Every comment, seriously, every comment, every like, every repost and message means so much to me. And when I am feeling the imposter syndrome creep in and I'm having one of those days where I feel like I just am going to quit 
your messages honestly keep me going. So without you, there would be no History BFF community. So thank you for tuning in each week to spend time with your history bestie. Really appreciate it. And with that, I will bid you adieu, but not before reminding you to do something that makes you happy. Go outside, soak up some vitamin D, touch some grass, take good care of yourself. <laughs> take good care of yourself. And don't forget to drink your water. Okay, you dehydrated ray a little sunshine. And I will see you next week when we talk about the Vitalia. What is that, you ask? You'll find out next week. Okay, love you. Bye. Why is there a metronome right now? Okay. (laughs) Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.